This is VOA News, reporting via remote. I'm Richard Green. After British Prime Minister Boris Johnson's announcement Thursday that he will resign, bookmakers in Britain are taking bets on who will be his successor. The AP's Ed Donahue reports. William Kajani with Star Sports has been outside number 10 Downing Street with a board with the current odds for Prime Minister. The favorite? Defense Secretary Ben Wallace. Kajani considers Steve Baker, a supporter of Brexit, a major contender. I say major contender, he's 10 to 1 now from 50 to 1. A big move for him. Kajani says chances are good for the two cabinet members in Britain who recently resigned. Sajid Javid, first to resign, kicked all this off. Um, was previously the health secretary, had been chancellor before. Again, reasonably big runner, reasonably public profile. Um, did he jump ship soon enough? Is the question to ask of both him and also Richard Sunak. Sunak was Boris Johnson's treasury chief. Bookmakers have been busy in Britain since signs started to appear that Boris Johnson was on his way out. I'm Ed Donahue. U.S. soccer icon Megan Rapino paid silent tribute Thursday to fellow sports star Brittany Griner during the White House awards ceremony. As she and several others received the Presidential Medal of Freedom, Rapino wore a white pantsuit with the initials BG embroidered on the lapel. I was earlier in a Moscow courtroom. Griner pleaded guilty to drug smuggling charges. The U.S. women's basketball star has been in prison in Russia since February for bringing vape cartridges with cannabis oil into the country. She insisted that she did not intend to break the law. White House spokeswoman Karine Jean-Pierre said U.S. President Joe Biden is going to do everything he can to make sure she gets home safely. She spoke in response to criticism from Griner's family that the Biden administration has not done enough to help her. This is VOA News. The Minnesota police officer convicted of killing George Floyd in 2020, has been sentenced for violating Floyd's civil rights. AP correspondent Norman Hall reports. Federal Judge Paul Magnuson sentenced Derek Chauvin to 21 years in prison for violating George Floyd's civil rights. Magnuson told the former officer that what he did was simply wrong and offensive. Chauvin pinned Floyd to the pavement outside of Minneapolis Corner Store for more than nine minutes as he lay dying. Magnuson, who presided over the federal trial and convictions of three other officers at the scene, blamed Chauvin alone for what happened. Chauvin was by far the senior officer on the scene. He will serve the federal sentence at the same time he serves his 22 and one half year sentence on state charges of murder and manslaughter. I'm Norman Hall. The lone abortion clinic in the southern U.S. state of Mississippi is seeking a legal path to reopen in the face of a state law that mostly bans the procedure. AP correspondent Mike Gracia reports. They are defeated. Put your foot on their neck. Although Mississippi's only abortion clinic closed its doors Wednesday on the eve of a state law taking effect that bans most abortions, pro-life and pro-choice protesters faced off outside the facility Thursday. At the same time, lawyers for Jackson Women's Health Organization asked the state Supreme Court to block the new law that was triggered by the U.S. Supreme Court ruling in late June that overturned Roe v. Wade. The attorneys for the clinic argue that in 1988, the Mississippi Supreme Court ruled the state constitution has a right to privacy that includes abortion. A state judge rejected the same argument Tuesday. I'm Mike Gracia. The European Parliament has passed a resolution in response to the overturning of the landmark 1973 case Roe v. Wade that legalized abortion in the United States. VOA's Marissa Melton has more. 
The European Union's parliament on Thursday overwhelmingly condemned the end of constitutional protections for abortion in the United States and called for such safeguards to be enshrined in the EU's fundamental rights charter. Lawmakers adopted the resolution in a vote of 324 to 155. There were 38 abstentions. National laws determine the status of abortion in individual EU countries. It is legal and practiced without much political opposition in many member nations, but it's banned in Malta and it's increasingly restricted in Poland. Marissa Melton, VOA News. Recapping our top story, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson resigned on Thursday and now British bookmakers are taking bets on who his successor might be. You can find more on this stories and all the stories we're covering Visit us at voanews.com. Reporting via remote, I'm Richard Green for VOA News. Good morning, Africa, and welcome to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Bungani in Washington. Today is Friday. July the 8th, and here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. In northern Ethiopia, ethnic Tigrayans in camps for displaced people say that they're being held against their will. There is no support here. We are on the verge of death. We spend day and night in this way, and the situation is critical. If the government does not support us, I don't know what our fate will be. Only death this Thursday marked the first ever World Kiswahili Language Day, a UN-organized celebration of one of the world's 10 most spoken languages. And Uganda plans to adopt it as its official language. Every, on every cabinet day, we shall have one hour lesson of Swahili. But we also agreed we shall do the same for parliament and you members of the media. Burkina Faso's ex-president Blaise Kampuare returned from exile on Thursday almost eight years after he was toppled in an uprising. We'll have those stories plus sports coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story, in northern Ethiopia, ethnic Tigrayans in camps for displaced people say that they're being held against their will because of their ethnicity, that is, after being forced from their homes. VOA was able to access two of the camps where inhabitants say they are not allowed to leave despite lacking water, food, and medicine. Henry Wilkins reports from Semera in Ethiopia. On the surface, the Samara and Agatina camps in northern Ethiopia's Afar region appear to be like other camps for those displaced by the country's civil war. But media reports this year indicate they are serving as prison camps for ethnic Tigrayans who were forcibly taken there and are not being allowed to leave. VOA was able to gain rare access to the camps where inhabitants say local security forces in December rounded them up in their hometown of Abala. VOA is not identifying those we spoke to due to concerns about possible retaliation. The first thing is, we don't have our identity documents. If we go out of the camp, the police will seize us and send us to prison. There are displaced people who are in prison. If you don't have an ID, you can't even go shopping. 
There is no freedom of movement, even though we repeatedly ask for it. We can go out sometimes, but only with the police escort. Temperatures in the camps at this time of year regularly rise above 40 degrees centigrade, 104 degrees Fahrenheit. But Grian's here, so they are not allowed to leave for medical treatment. There have been seven cases where people have died since we arrived here because of lack of medicine. They died from hypertension, diabetes and, of course, children and the elderly died because of the high temperature. A mother in Agatina camp, which houses about 700 Degrians, says she fears for her children. We came here six months ago. The situation here is so bad. We don't get medicine or enough food. There are 150 children here. The Ethiopian Human Rights Commission on June 29th acknowledged that 9,000 Tigrayans were being held illegally in the camp and called for their immediate release. People there are held against their will. Uh, that families are not um, staying together that men and women, by being separated, you're separating a family, that they are not getting medical help, ready access to medical help, when you need help outside the camp, that is. Uh, These are the three key indicators, and that is why we are certainly alarmed and concerned about this this Tigrayan man says he's suffering from tuberculosis. There is no support here. We are on the verge of death. We spend day and night in this way, and the situation is critical. If the government does not support us, I don't know what our fate will be. Only death waits for us. Ethiopia's federal government had no immediate response to the Rights Commission's call for their release. The Afar region's Disaster Prevention and Food Security Coordination Office initially agreed to an interview with VOA, then suddenly stopped responding to messages and phone calls. Henry Wilkins for VOA News, Samara, Ethiopia. African and European researchers are meeting in France to give fresh impetus to Africa's ambitious Great Green Wall project intended to fight climate change and support communities across the Sahel region. Much of the area is plagued by conflict and hunger, but as Lisa Bryant reports for VOA, scientists are looking at new ways to move ahead. It's been slow going, building Africa's so-called Great Green Wall of trees and bushes intended to stretch nearly 8,000 kilometers from Mauritania in the west to tiny Djibouti in the east. Fifteen years into the project, set to be complete in 2030, only a fraction of the reforestation has been realized. Eight of the 11 countries involved are grappling with unrest. Funding hasn't matched the development challenge. Still, environment professor Aliogise points to tangible successes. In the Sahel area of his native Senegal, reforested areas are gaining ground. He says they're home to larger and more diverse populations of animals, birds and insects than areas where trees haven't been planted. Scientists are finding health and other benefits of local plants like desert day palms, which are valued by communities 
communities that might be commercialized and generate revenue. Gise is co-director of the Tessakeri Observatory in northern Senegal, which seeks a holistic approach to green wall development, spanning areas like health, agriculture, the economy, and of course, the environment. He and other experts meeting this week in the western French city of Poitiers want to widen their collaboration currently happening in Burkina Faso and Senegal to include researchers from other Sahel countries like Niger, Chad and possibly Mali. Despite unrest in those countries, they say progress like building baseline data can happen. The Tessa Keri Observatory's other co-director, French anthropologist Gilles Bouetch, says another goal is building partnerships between researchers and government agencies managing Greenwall development. The group is diving into new areas like exploring the impact of animal-to-human transmitted diseases such as Ebola and COVID-19. Bouetch says their research doesn't just benefit Africa's Sahel, but also countries like France already facing the fallout of a warming and changing climate. Lisa Bryant for VOA News, Paris. Debrick Africa continues. Burkina Faso's ex-president Blaise Campoire returned from exile on Thursday, almost eight years after he was toppled in an uprising. Campoire was convicted in April in absentia to life in prison for complicity in the killing of his predecessor, Thomas Sankara. He's said to be in the country to take part in a meeting with interim president Paul Henry Damiba and other former leaders. It is not clear what his fate will be in relation to his conviction, but lawyers for Thomas Sankara's family say they are demanding that he be arrested on arrival. Malawi's government has ordered police to investigate former president Peter Mutarika and an aide in connection with the 2018 murder of a 24-year-old albino man. Days earlier, Malawi's high court sentenced 12 people, including a Catholic priest and a police officer, for taking part in the murder. Some of those convicted named the former president as an accomplice, which Mutarika dismissed as a ploy to tarnish his image. Lamek Masina reports from Blantyre. The director of public prosecutions, Steve Kayuni, says the order was in response to a court judgment questioning why no investigations were undertaken to substantiate the alleged involvement of former president Peter Mutalika and his former aide Heather Wikintabam in the murder of McDonald Masambuka and Abaino. Kayuni said Mutalika and Intabam could be charged with causing one to harm a person with a disability extraction of human tissue and transacting in human tissue. During trial, a former police officer, Chikundi Chileka, and another man, Alfred Yohane, had on several occasions alleged that Mutalika and his aide were behind the plot to kill the albino. Their testimony forced presiding High Court Judge Zwonen Taba to recuse herself from the case in May 2019. Former presidential aide Heather Wikintaba is her paternal uncle. Ntaba, a former chairperson in the National Task Force on Persons with Albinism, told VOA Thursday the findings of the inquiry, which the government began in 2019, failed to prove the allegations. There is uh, the President's Commission of Inquiry. He instituted at the same time to look at these allegations. 
and other issues about killings of persons with albinism. They came up with their findings, did not confirm these allegations. In any case, the current DPP is aware that there is such a commission of inquiries report. He should look at it. He should know what the report is saying. Ntaba said he has long been willing to challenge the allegations in court. As soon as I heard my name and the former president's name in court at that time, I went to him in response to the accusations by these people that he's talking about now. I said, I want to come to court and respond to this. And his answer was, don't worry, there is no evidence. In a statement Wednesday, former president Timutalika also rejected the allegations as purely false, malicious and evil propaganda aimed at tarnishing his image. Mutalika asked the government to make public the findings of the commission of inquiry he instituted in 2019 to investigate causes of attacks on people with albinism dating to 2014. Human rights advocate Michael Kayata said it's wrong for Mutalika to dismiss the allegations as political propaganda. These allegations were raised by the convicts in court. Uh, the best that Mutalika can do is to let the you know, judicial process uh, run its course on this matter, rather than dismissing the, uh, the allegations against him as, as, as mayor of Uganda. Uh, because of the serious nature of these allegations, I think Mutalika should let the judicial process uh, do its work. Yang Muhamba is the president of the Association of People with Albinism in Malawi. He says investigations into all those mentioned in Masambuka's death would help uncover the market of albino bones, which remains unknown. It is important that all the aspects of that particular case should be looked into. In terms of all those people who were suspected to be involved, it should be thoroughly investigated so that the process of uncovering the market should be in a positive way. Masambuka disappeared from his village on March 9, 2018. Less than a month later, his limbless body was found buried in a garden at a home where one of the assailants lived in the Machinga district in the south of Malawi. Former police officer Chikondi Chileka, along with Alfred Yohane, were among 12 people imprisoned in connection with the albino man's death. Chileka was given a 30-year prison sentence while Yohane received a life term. Others include a medical practitioner and an herbalist. Lamek Masina for VUA News, Blanta, Malawi. You're listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. This Thursday marked the first ever World Kiswahili Language Day, a UN-organized celebration of one of the world's 10 most spoken languages. UNESCO says that Kiswahili comprises of more than a dozen main dialects with around 200 million speakers across the world, predominantly in East Africa, in countries including Somalia, Mozambique, and and western parts of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. Though most are concentrated in Kenya and Tanzania, and the government of Uganda plans to introduce Kiswahili as its official language. Officials say that it will be made compulsory in lower levels of school and students will be tested for proficiency. Analysts say the introduction of Swahili or Kiswahili will help facilitate regional trade and integration. From Kampala, reporter Mugume Davis Rakarinji has more. In a media briefing Tuesday, Uganda's Information Minister, Dr. Chris Badiomunsi, 
said the government will introduce materials and look for Swahili language teachers, both in school and for the public. When you go for meetings in the East African community, you find they talk in Swahili, then for you, a Ugandan, you have to look for somebody to translate and bring you to speed with the rest of the others. For instance, we agreed that every, on every cabinet day, we are going to have lessons. We start cabinet at 10, but we agreed from 9 to 10, we shall have one hour lesson of Swahili. But we also agreed we shall do the same for parliament and you members of the media. Swahili, also known as Kiswahili, is an infusion of Bantu languages and foreign languages, mainly Arabic, Portuguese, German and Hindu. In recent times, the language also adapts some of its vocabulary from English. Lawrence Muganga, a professor of political science at Victoria University in Kampala, welcomes the decision. He says the introduction of Swahili is long overdue. It, it is something like gives an African that kind of identity. But moving beyond the identity, you get closer to the aspect of uh, economic benefits that may come with uh, being, uh, ha having the ability to speak Swahili everywhere in, on this continent. And if it is beginning in East Africa, and this is a language where people are going to be transacting, uh, be, are using to transact business, so different countries have to be emphatic on teaching this language. It is believed to be spoken by over 200 million people, mainly from across the sub-Sahara. Muganga says the language also help is trade and business as many people across East Africa speak it. Student Daisen Dagile says he's glad she'll easily communicate with other people from the region. I met vendors and we had to negotiate, but they knew Swahili and I didn't, so it was very, very difficult to understand each other. Yes, and they couldn't understand the English well. So it was so difficult. Yeah, and I think that uh, if we learn the Kiswahili to be very easy for everyone, life has actually been made easy for everyone across the EAC borders. In February, the African Union also adopted Swahili as an official working language. Leaders from regional bloc, the East African community, have also recommended that Swahili becomes the official language. For VOA News, I am Ugume, Davis Ruakarinji in Kampala, Uganda. In Nigeria, the main opposition party has formed a reconciliation committee to enhance the group's unity ahead of next year's general election. The move came after local media reported divisions among members of the party. They allegedly include former aspiring presidential candidate and River State Governor Naisom Wike. Wike came in second in the opposition party's recent presidential primaries won by former Vice President Atiku Abubakar. Initial reports say Wike could be chosen as the running mate of Atiku, but if Yanyi Okua, governor of Delta State, was selected instead, the report suggests that Wike was displeased with some of his supporters saying he should consider defecting to another party where he is respected. And several leaders of the opposition have met with Mr. Wike to persuade him to join their party. For the latest political developments, VOS Peter Cloti reached Ibrahim Momo, he is a political analyst based in Nigeria's capital, Abuja. It's a welcome development because Wike is a very important uh, member of the party. He has the backing of virtually all the state governors within the party. So when somebody as uh, influential as Wike is um, obviously having issues with the presidential candidates, 
and indeed the national chairman of the party, it's a cause for concern, you know, for the party. So I think it's a welcome development. I would be firm believe that um, there isn't a pathway for the PDP winning the presidency that not involved in the of Wiki, you know, because if in terms of um, reach, it's about the most uh, influential PDP member today. Some people are suggesting that knowing how politics is played in Nigeria, especially for presidential primaries contest, everybody knows the game. He was defeated by the rules of that primaries. So why should there be reconciliation when he lost based on the rules of the game? The, the issue is the party wants to win the presidency. The issue now is that you need him to be together. You need everybody to work together for the party to win the election. So it's not about whether he was he lost in the primaries now, but it's more like the party wants to win the presidency. We just add that Nathan Wike is powerful because he's a member of the PDP. So he also needs the party. But apparently the party needs him more if they are going to win the uh, uh, presidential election. There was a viral video that went on social media platforms where Governor Nyesom Wike was purportedly saying that uh, he would defect and that if the APC would give him something better than what the PDP is giving him, then he would defect. Do you think the party felt threatened after, like, a presidential candidate for the Labour Party, uh, Peter Obi, came to visit and other uh, prominent members of other parties coming to pay respect to him and trying to uh, woo him from the PDP. Is that why the People's Democratic Party want to take steps to mend fences with Governor Nyesom Wiki? Yes, um, you pointed out correctly too that um, quite a number of persons, uh, influential party members from other parties, want to that where it is clear that uh, the candidate of the Labour Party, Peter Obi, and visited Minister um, Wiki, and then um, the, the candidate of the political candidate of the NNPP, the New Nigeria People's Party, Radio Musa Kwankwansu, also visited Minister Wiki to try to woo him. And of course, you see that um, they talk about a third force has to do with an alliance between the Labour Party and the NNPPs, uh, that's Peter Obi and. Uh, both of them have met Wiki. So I think the party, the PDP, is now feeling that there really is an issue. I think that's what is moving or encouraging the party to try to negotiate or resolve the challenges or differences that Wiki has with them. That was Ibrahim Momo, a Nigerian political analyst based in Abuja. He was speaking to VOA's Peter Cloti. Now it's time for Daybreak Africa Sports. We go to Abuja, Nigeria with Samson O'Malley. Good morning to you, Samson. Good Friday morning to you too, Jackson. We begin the sports in Morocco, where South Africa's Bayana Bayana reached the quarterfinals of the Women's African Cup of Nations after their 3-1 victory over 10 women Burundi in Rabat on Thursday. Bayana Bayana produced a dominant performance to advance from Group C thanks to goals by Tembe Katmana, Amogelang Mutau and Linda Muslalu. 
The result means Banyana Banyana advanced to the last eight with six points after beating title holders Nigeria in their opening game on Monday. Banyana Banyana will now play Botswana on their final group game on Sunday while Burundi conclude their campaign in their match against title holders Nigeria. And staying with the women, African Cup of Nations title holders Nigeria revived their campaign at the tournament following their 2-0 win over Botswana in Rabat late Thursday evening. The Super Falcons lost their opening match against South Africa on Monday but made amends thanks to goals by Ifoma Onumonu and Christy Uchebe. In today's fixture, Burkina Faso will play Uganda while Morocco women will confront Senegal. Away from the Women African Cup of Nations, Global Football Players Union's Fifth Pro has warned footballers about systematic and widespread contractual violations in football, signaling out Algeria, China, Greece, Libya, Romania, Saudi Arabia and Turkey as countries where these risks are high. The union said the non-payment of salaries was also a recurring problem for second division clubs in Greece often seize operations without honoring debts. Greece's Players Union said clubs in the country owed more than 25 million euros in unpaid wages. In tennis news, Tunisia's Ans Jabor became the first African woman and first Arab or North African man or woman to reach a Grand Slam singles final in the open era. The number three seed prevailed 6-2, 3-6, 6-1 over her friend Maria, a 34-year-old mother of two, ranked 103 in the world to reach the Wimbledon final. The kind of result I was hoping for, so uh, now one more match, one more step and to continue... Uh... Uh, and hopefully get the title. And that's it on Daybreak Africa Sports. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, Jackson, in Washington. Thank you, Samson. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington, wishing you a great weekend ahead, Africa.